Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on June 23rd, 2023. Kristen Olson is a writer from Portland, Oregon. Her new book, Sweet in Tooth and Claw, Stories of Generosity and Cooperation in the Natural World, which the Wall Street Journal calls excellent and illuminating, probes the mutually beneficial relationships among living things that undergirds a natural world. Her last book was The Soil Will Save Us, How Scientists, Farmers, and Foodies Are Healing the Soil to Save the Planet, which the Los Angeles Times calls a hopeful book and a necessary one, a fast-paced and entertaining shot across the bow of mainstream thinking about land use. She appeared in the award-winning documentary film, Kiss the Ground, to speak about the connection between soil health and climate health. Olson's articles have been published in the New York Times, Orion, Discover, Gourmet, Oprah, and many other print and online publications. Her magazine work has been anthologized in Best American Science Writing and Best American Food Writing. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Kristen. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Really happy to be here. Hey, Kristen, one of the things that we typically start the podcast off with is just to give you an opportunity to tell your story to the listeners in terms of your background and where you're from, where you grew up, and what were your first exposures to nature and the land? That's a great question. I grew up in a small town in the Sacramento Valley. Probably one of my earliest memories is my parents were such ferocious, dedicated gardeners. They not only had beautiful flowers and beautiful landscaping plants and all that, but they always had this huge vegetable garden and they always had these huge vats of compost. 
that would age in one pile and then go to the next pile and go to the next pile. So they were avid gardeners. They were often a terrible embarrassment to me because when we would drive around, they would see some tree. They would have to zoom over and they would have to knock on the door of the person in the house and talk to them about their plants and all that. And even though I found that you know, somewhat embarrassing when I was a child, you know, it really, that kind of enthusiasm, it passed to me and I am as enthusiastic, if not as accomplished as they were in terms of growing plants and vegetables. We did a lot of driving up into the Sierra Nevadas, beautiful landscapes, always worried about fires, even back then. So that was where I grew up. You know, a lot of people have asked me, after reading my last two books, if I have a background in science, and no, I was a I was an English major, and then a you know got a master's in fine arts in writing. But I was I really have gotten my science education as a writer by having the incredible opportunity and blessing to talk to all these scientists who are doing fascinating work. That is one of the wonderful things about being a journalist is that it sort of gives you this platform from which you can ask question after question after question and just indulge your curiosity as far as uh, somebody's endurance holds up. Did the folks, just uh, reaching back one more time to the family vegetable garden, were they growing it to bring a lot of food into the house as far as canning and preservation and, and things like that? Yeah, they didn't. Let me see. They canned beans and they made pickles, but then they just grew a lot of vegetables just for us to eat fresh daily. You know, my mother did not consider it a real meal without vegetables there, you know, so one vegetable and then a salad. So they were really into it. You know, it was a small town. It was a very horsey town and I had a horse. So I would grow carrots to feed my horse. And there was a lot of focus on growing things. Was that well water? Were you able to? No. Did you have easy access to water? No. No. uh -uh. That really does tell our listeners a lot that you really have been embedded into the earth and that experience no one can take away from you. It's true. I should also say that my grandparents were farmers and while it wasn't a huge bustling enterprise, but I did love going around with my grandfather and helping to collect eggs and taking care of, he had a small orchard and helping him take care of trees and helping him move his cattle around. One time I accidentally let them out and then it took a lot of work to get them back in, but I did love all of that. And I think it's such a rich childhood. I was talking to someone yesterday about their daughter being able to go and help the farmer who lives next door and how she loves it. She just hops into a little golf cart and she's young. She's, I think, eight or nine. She jumps, jumps into the golf cart and she can zoom off and help the neighbor when she gets home from school. That's the kind of thing that a lot of children in the city just don't have available to them. That's a shame. It's true. You know, I have this vision of the cities of the future, you know, hopefully the the near future where there are daisy and some of those petals are urban farms with animals and, you know, orchards and crops and places. And I think that is happening in a lot of cities. There are a lot of cities that have got some awesome urban farming projects going. I, I think you're right. Hal and I are always wondering, where are things going next? And that's why we always like to say that our working with people through the podcast is, is like having a masterclass because we're learning at the same time. One of the things that we wanted to find out is the most recent book that you wrote, Sweet in Tooth and Claw. 
How did that come about? Because you have some very important people in that book that we're going to look back and say, wow, she knew and worked with and interviewed all these different people who were making a difference in our environment. So I think that the genesis of that book really was in my previous book, which was called The Soil Will Save Us. And even though I use the term mutualism a lot, which is a mutually beneficial relationship among two or more species, I use that term a lot in the new book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw, the heart and soul of what I was writing about in The Soil Will Save Us, the mutualism between plants and soil microorganisms. Learning about that book had many pleasures for me. Also got to talk to amazing scientists and I got to talk to amazing farmers and great activists who were trying to improve the way we react with the land around us. The most exciting insight of that book came when I realized that plants are not just takers. Plants are also givers and that there's this give and take going on. You know, plants are harvesting carbon dioxide out of the air and turning it into a fuel, like carbon-based fuel to grow. But then they are sharing a huge portion of that carbon fuel through their roots with the soil microorganisms. And then the soil microorganisms are bringing them nutrients and minerals and water and messages. So learning about that mutualism in the soil will save us was, it just completely changed my view of the world around me. You know, knowing that this incredible cooperation and bargaining and working together was going on in every plant that I saw around me. So that was just world changing. And I was sort of casting about after I wrote that book for, you know, what's the next book going to be? And can I continue to write about that kind of thing? And then I heard Suzanne Samard speaking at a conference about that incredible relationship between the, the soil fungi and um, trees in a forest. It's possible I leapt from my seat when I heard her talking about that. You know, I thought, oh my God, you know, this widespread cooperation in nature, that's what I want to write about. So those are the stepping stones to this topic. Yeah, I think there's similar experiences that Eva and I have had actually before we met and started talking about doing a podcast. For me, as a lifelong career arborist, what you've been writing about and what Suzanne has done with her research has kind of been a a big old paradigm shift in terms of realizing that so many of the landscapes that I have been involved with for, for the past 20, 30 years essentially are artificial and manufactured. Even reading a chapter this morning from your book, it made me think about trees that often must be a little bit lonely in terms of isolated in an ocean of turf or isolated in a ocean of artificially manufactured mulch, they have a root system and they're missing that mycorrhiza. But I wonder, you mentioned your worldview. Can we explore that a little bit more? How are you seeing the world these days with what you've been experiencing, the people you've been talking to, what you know now about so much more about soil science? Can we go a little deeper with that? Well, I just, you know, I think we just have to assume when we look at the world around us, even this, even the places we think are dead, <laughs> like a rock or the side of a building, we're just surrounded by this dizzying amount of life, you know, that science will never be able to completely comprehend because it's hard to study and it's time consuming. And I often say that probably every living thing has a mutualistic relationship with something else. And the reason that scientists say probably you know, most likely probably is because they 
they can't say everything because they haven't studied everything. But I think, you know, that we can assume that everything has these dazzling uh, uh, life affirming connections to other living things. And, you know, even the side of a building is covered with microorganisms. We can't see them, but they are there. You know, even a rock is covered with, well, it's covered with lichen and moss, but like that moss is like a forest and it's just full of of microorganisms and things that have been getting along with each other for thousands, if not millions of years, trading favors, trading resources. You know, all of that has made me exceptionally sensitive to the kind of chemical pollution that we so often inflict upon the natural world, that we inflict upon ourselves. That's something that constantly worries me. But I'm always aware of how we're treating the land. I mean, when I'm out walking my dog, I'm looking at that bear, even here in Portland, which is, you know, supposed to be an enlightened green city. You know, when they plant a tree, they make a big naked space around it and they tell people to keep that space naked, you know, keep that ground bare. Well, I know from talking with scientists who are doing really important work on on what plants need, having that bare space just means that the water evaporates faster and that they need those those other plants and those other plants to harbor and and feed and give habitat to insects and which then feed birds. So one of the things in my house in Portland, I had aging maples that are just dying and not doing well. So I had to replace one of these maples and I replanted it with that spot with a a native Oregon oak. And I went to my favorite nursery, which really specializes in native plants and and drought-hardy plants. I said, so I'm planting this little oak tree in its natural habitat. What What's with it? What grows next to it? What is it like to be around? And so I filled up that empty space with ocean spray and some native grasses that are found around oaks and some sedges and some flowering plants that are often found around oaks. And I'm just hoping that, you know, I'm, I'm planting a community, not just one individual and hoping that it, they all thrive together. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because for a long time, people would say, well, plants don't talk. They don't communicate. Animals don't communicate. We're the only ones who communicate. And I'm like, how could you be so arrogant <laughs> to think that we're the only ones that communicate? Maybe they don't speak the way we speak. Maybe there's higher forms of communication that we're unaware of that is happening right in our midst. And we're, we can't, we're not in tune to it because we're not at that level. And it's hard for humans to even think that way because that would mean that we may not be the smartest or we may not be the most intuitive or we may not be the highest form of living being on earth. And I still question that too. Like, you know, is there something that's even a higher form than us, but doesn't act like us? And, you know, when I think of trees and I think of trees and I think of trees again, (laughs) Because they're standing there. They can't move like we can move, but they're very smart. They have thousands of organisms on them and they welcome all kinds of animals to to their branches. And I just think that that's something that, you know, humans can't do. (laughs) We just can't do that. Right. I mean, yeah, trees have superpowers because they are in one place. So they have to do, be able to do a lot that, and, and it's exciting, you know, it's exciting with science now because so many scientists are, you know, there was there was so much that we thought that we knew about animal intelligence. 
and we we thought that animals were you know just not nearly as smart as us in all these ways because we were evaluating them for human intelligence not for their own intelligence so i think it's really exciting that science is is looking at animal intelligence in different ways and looking at vegetable intelligence in different ways and looking at fungal intelligence in different ways it's a it's a really exciting time but i'm still convinced that it's all so incredibly complex that we'll never get it all figured out and there will always be mysteries and amazing things going on that that we'll miss there was a little conversation on one of the groups that i belong to and they're talking about electromagnetic fields and is it possible that electricity can cause growth well there may not be a lot of experiments on it but think about it <laughs> just watch things and see what happens after a thunderstorm or see what happens after yeah yeah uh, you know an electrical charge have or see what happens in california uh like a, a big fire after an electrical fu- storm you know everything goes up in smoke well that's that's a whole nother form of generation or regeneration through fire you know the, the whole idea of the fire of species and i mean there's just so much out there that we just don't know about and because we don't know about it we don't believe it or because we haven't tested it we don't believe it and that's another another thing but reading your book and your first chapter with your interaction with Susan Smart was very intriguing to me because you were with a lot of different scientists at the same time working in the field. And of course, her book is so magical to hear how she figured out the birches and the spruces have this synergistic reaction to one another and how one can give water to one when it needs it and the other one could give food to the other one when it needs it and you know how she was being poo-pooed by the by the forestry groups because you know what does she know and that's ridiculous and then she you know took a good 10 years before she could prove it but it was her own observations that really made everything come together in one point where she could actually say yes look these birches are actually giving these spruces, something that they don't have right now. And it kind of reminds me of a bank, you know, sometimes we need to go to the bank and get something that we don't have. And, you know, then sometimes we go back and we put the thing back into the bank, you know, that same kind of reaction, but we don't look at it that way. And I, and I, I really, I want to hear a little bit more about your interaction with her and her teams. She is a lot of fun to hang out with. I will tell you that. So um, after seeing after seeing her speak at that conference, I, I knew I wanted to interview her. So I went up there actually a couple of times. And the second time uh, that I was planning to come up and actually do a, an interview for the book, she said, well, come on and join me. You know, you can join us and you can help set up this research site in this forest. And, you know, it, it really it really drove home to me, you know, what a lot of work it is doing this research. You know, we were carrying in all this equipment and, you know, dividing up the forest into these sections to sort of study the trees and the plants and the soil in each of the sections. But it was just, it was just great. You know, it was great work. She is a cheerful and enthusiastic researcher and really welcoming, welcoming to other scientists who want to work with her. Welcome to somebody like me who was sort of stumbling around and probably screwing up a few of the things that she was doing because I didn't quite know what I was doing. But it was great. It was a great experience. And because you were trying to get a story too. 
Yes, I was trying to you get were a trying start. To story. So you I were... was trying. I was trying to do the things that I needed to do with my. You know, I was hammering these little metal tags onto the onto trees that would soon be stumps, and trying to take notes at the same take notes and take pictures at the same time. Trying to be useful to her and useful to me, useful to the project. One of the things I observed, and actually, maybe you can shed a little insight. I was actually out to the Pacific Northwest last month, the Olympic Peninsula, and it was Port Townsend, Washington. And as we hiked, we kept noticing stumps, usually at about 10 or 12 inches diameter, and maybe about 18 inches, two feet in height. But clearly, and this is the arborist in me, callus wood coming over the top as if it was closing itself. And I thought of Suzanne's work a little bit. It's like, this is not supposed to be happening. There's no needles, there's no leaves, there's minimal photosynthesis. And yet, adjacent to this stump configuration, which is obviously alive since there's wound wood engaged, there's a big partner tree right there and I'm assuming sending over the essential sugars and nutrients and water to promote the healing process on a tree that was cut down, I think, mostly to accommodate the trail. Did you ever observe that kind of stuff? It was, it was amazing to me. I don't know. I don't think I have. Okay. But, but your, your theory about it sounds quite possible. Yeah, I have a couple of pictures. Eva, do you know anything about this? Well, I was I was just telling somebody a story yesterday at, at an environmental meeting that uh, I was actually my foot doctor who knows I'm a horticulturalist because we taught at the same university. And he said to me, well, I had to take my black gum down because it was the insurance company and they had an inspector come out and they said, your foundation's starting to crumble from this big tree. And it was over 300 years old, a black gum. And when they cut it down, all of a sudden, the whole yard started filling up with all these sprouts, these new trees. And I said to him, well, yeah. that's one of the ways they propagate themselves. And that's the number one way they propagate themselves because they're wetland species. But he was in a dry location. He said, what am I going to do? He said, I can't just keep running my mower over. And I said, well, I said, I have an idea. Why don't you pick one of those little sprouts and tell everybody else that this is the new tree and help have them feed it? And he looks at me, he just was like, what? And I said, well, they do, they do feed each other. So that's the parent that's, that's what's left is what was in the parent and it's in the root. So if they're pushing up new plants, why don't you pick one of those plants and make it the new tree in your yard and pick a spot that's away from your foundation. So he goes, okay, well, I'm going to try it. And I said, and then, you know, do a little clearing around it, do a little bit of mulching around it, leave the rest of the garden there and see what happens. And just literally tell the plants that this is the new tree. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'm going to tell you at your next foot doctor's appointment. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great plan. And he should keep pictures. He should, he should keep a photo diary. I, I wanna, I'm going to write to him. I'm going to send him an email and tell him, take photos because yeah. that will be good for a, a nice uh, story. But the, he felt really horrible about cutting it down because he said he never had to he really didn't have to use his air conditioning much in the summer because the, the that years ago, the tree, that's how they built the home. They built the home close enough to the tree that the tree would canopy over the house to keep it cool. And so um, uh, he said, now it's bloody hot. He said, it's just so hot. It's ridiculous. 
<laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. It it makes me ill when I you know mm-hmm. I have a I have a house that I have a lot of what's called a parking strip here. Yeah. You know that yeah strip of, of grass or something else that is along the street. And you know, as I said, we've got all these old damage. They were damaged by bad pruning. I think they were damaged by a storm decades ago, and they're all so sick. Um, and I, I just hate having to take any of them out. Sounds like they might have been all planted at, at relatively the same time, maybe when the block or the neighborhood was being developed. Yeah. Yeah. So I live in a neighborhood that a historic neighborhood that has a very specific street tree planting scheme. And they used to be awfully rigid about their their scheme. They used to only allow you to replant the same thing that came out. So my my yeah. particular block is supposed to be only maples. And I remember somebody from the city came and, you know, talking with him about replanting a tree. And I said, well, why did why does it have to be another maple? Wouldn't diversity be better? You know, wouldn't if you plant all of one thing, isn't it like planting a you know a cornfield and it the cornfield is going to attract when it, there's that monoculture in a field, it's just going to attract the things that want to eat corn. Aren't we just attracting pests for maples by planting all the you know soldiering maples on every street? And he was like, oh, it's it's not a forest here; it's an urban neighborhood. Oh, they have changed. They have changed. They don't require that anymore. Yeah, well, we, we know with all these communities, especially in Ohio and Wisconsin, where they had ashes along their streets after they lost all their elms um, back in the 50s. Now they have sizable trees and they lost them all a second time because they had monocultures a second time. So like, when are we going to learn that we need to do diversity? And it doesn't have to be a tunnel of trees. It can be a tunnel of trees, but it doesn't have to look um, the same in that tunnel. The tunnel walls don't have to be the same. They could be different, different shapes and colors. But, you know, that's how, how they used to do things years ago. And, you know, what they did years ago, well, we'll just keep doing it until something happens. And that's, that's what forces us to do something that we were not comfortable doing. Right. So with the book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw, you take uh, the reader on a journey from the forests and then to the desert, which is eventually turned into wetlands and then a coffee growing enterprise. Are you able to make a tie into green cities and regenerative plantings to invigorate urban living? You kind of touched on that. At the outset. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think there's, I think we have to make a tie. I mean, I think if we don't make a tie, we're going to be living in a very uncomfortable world. You know, unfortunately, so much of our farming, although this is changing in many places slowly, but um, unfortunately, so much of our farming is, is so damaging to landscapes. You know, it damages the soil, you know, these vast monocultures that are supported with you know, a wave of, of chemicals for fertilizer and then a wave of chemicals for to fight fungi and a wave of chemicals to fight weeds. And, and you know, it's just yeah. awful. And so much of our land is like that. Although, as I say, it, it is changing and those changes are really exciting. But, um, you know, so we're not 
only faced with climate issues and a, a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere comes from land that's been mismanaged. You know, plants are putting carbon into the soil. And when we mismanage land like that, we're just gassing it off. And we're also creating these huge hot areas. We're just reflecting all this heat with the bare soil. So there's that going on on a lot of our agricultural lands. And that is causing a climate issue. And that's also, you know, part of the uh, worldwide biodiversity crisis. You know, we've got plummeting populations of insects and birds and amphibians and all these living things. And of course, we want to change our farming so that it is uh, something that supports life and supports the rest of nature. But also, I think we have to turn our eye to our cities and how much especially as cities are getting bigger and bigger. You know, the world's population is more and more becoming an urban population. And I think that we need to, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, obviously. So there are, you know, I ran into a, online, I ran into a group of people who are activists around the world in trying to green cities, add natural vegetation or vegetation as much as possible in cities. And I went to their conference in Paris. It was called the Nature of Cities. And so they are just, you know, these activists around the world are doing fabulous work of roof gardens and vegetation growing up the sides of buildings and, you know, expanded parks and doing all this to make cities more natureful. You know, and I think that that has two really profound possibilities. You know, one is that it will give habitat and more of a fighting chance to some of the insects and birds and, you know, other living things that, that are getting poisoned out in those agricultural fields that are farmed conventionally. But also we need that closeness to the rest of nature. I mean, it is, you know, we evolved out of the natural world. We weren't packaged, you know, in a factory and put on a shelf. You know, we we evolved out of that world and we need that we need that constant reconnection with the microbes that are in the rest of nature and the chemicals that are in the rest of the, the chemicals that trees and plants exude. We need those connections. I mean, there's there's been a very famous piece of research that was done connecting the a very common microorganism that's in the soil to our happiness, to our well-being. You know, we sniff that, yes, yes. we sniff that exudate that's coming off those microorganisms in the soil and, and it lifts our spirits. And we have, you know, we are also an ecosystem. We have 35, 35 trillion bacteria in us and on us, as well as all these other, you know, yeast and fungi and protozoa and viruses living right. in us and on us. And, you know, some of them are just along for the ride. But most of them are doing us a big favor. They're they're managing our metabolism and you know managing our immunity, all this stuff. Even managing our our the way our brain works. So we we need that. You know, if we're we don't want to doom the rest of humanity to living in these cities that don't have any nature in them, because that that really is dooming us. I think you're right about that. And one of the things that I found very intriguing when I was reading your book about about how um, you were you were interviewing people that were changing how they manage cattle and how they shift them from one field to another rather than letting them roam around, 
Can you talk a little bit about that and how important the beaver became in that particular instance, which I was like, yay, the beaver finally gets his due. <laughs> I was like, hooray. The beaver gets more supporters every day. Yeah, I just love that story in the book about the cattle ranchers in eastern Nevada. So eastern Nevada is very, very hot and dry. And there are these little threads of water that go through it. And these creek, these threads of water, these creeks have been become very degraded over like 150 years of cattle ranching. And they and um, so there was a group of scientists uh, working with various government agencies who were monitoring the health of a local trout, and they concluded that the the, the trout were really challenged because the creeks were so challenged, and the creeks were challenged because of um, the way that the cattle were being managed. So these scientists and these government uh, people from government agencies went to some of these ranchers and said, hey, we think that if you change the way you manage your cattle, that'll have an effect on the creeks and then that'll have an effect on the trout. And, you know, nobody likes people who don't do the work to tell them, you know, you need to change this. You you need to do it another way. So, but these ranchers uh, wanted to have a, a good relationship with these government agencies and these scientists. And so they agreed to try changing their grazing. And so, you know, one of the things that they were doing was preventing the cattle from just hanging out on these little creeks, these tiny little creeks that went through the landscape. Because the cattle what ranchers usually do is that they, in that part of the country, they turn them out on the open range eight months out of the year. And so the cattle can just hang out wherever it is that they want. And reasonably, they kind of want to hang out near those creeks. And But they were damaging the creeks. So they, they would not only eat all the vegetation along the creeks, but they would, um, their hooves would sink down in the mud and damage the tubers and the roots and all that. So these creeks didn't have any vegetation around them. One of the problems was that the creeks were so warm because they didn't have vegetation around them. And also the banks would just, you know, when there would be the spring thaw and water would rush through or when there would be a storm and water would rush through, the banks would just get torn away. So these creeks were not only warm, but they, a lot of them had developed gullies around them and they, they were just in really bad shape. And so the the ranchers started to change that. And they also changed, some of them also changed their grazing patterns where they don't keep the cattle on one field or one piece of ground for a long time. They sort of move them along, you know, observing them to see how much they had eaten down the plants there because the cattle impact on the ground can actually be really beneficial. You know, a lot of people think that all grazing is bad, but no, the grazing, if it's done right, when they have the cattle on a piece of ground and then move them on before they can eat the plants down to the ground, that action is good. You know, they're sort of churning up the soil and dropping fertilizer there and, and stimulating growth in the plants. Anyway, so the ranchers did all these things. And even though they really didn't think that the creeks could get better, you know, because in living memory, the creeks had been bad. The creeks had been shallow and warm and dried up in the middle of every single summer. So things did start to change, you know, things that, you know, the seed bank everywhere is just so full of potential. 
things started to grow again along the creeks and and the ranchers were all feeling pretty pleased with themselves that all this vegetation was coming back. And then they were horrified because all of a sudden the beaver showed up and the beaver had been almost exterminated in that part of the country by fur traders you know, a century ago. And ranchers typically shoot beaver. You know, they don't like them on their mm-hmm. land because they mess with their irrigation systems and all that. But the scientists said, well, let's just give it a minute. Let's see what happens. And of course, it was just this amazing transformation of this landscape. The beavers started to build their dams. It slowed down the water moving through the landscape. You know, mostly what we in modern America, um, what we do with rivers is to straighten them out and make them good for boats and, you know, make them turn them into canals and damn them. Yeah, and damn them. Right, right. But the beavers, of course, the beavers dam them, but it has a very wonderful effect. You know, that water starts to seep out into the landscape. All these new plants start to grow. You know, after uh, a, a number of years, there was just this phenomenal impact on the landscape where the water table of the land actually has risen. You know, the vegetation just stretches way out. The amount of open water has grown. The, the the length of these creeks has grown because now instead of being sort of a straight line, they have all these curves and wiggles and ponds and all that. So they're actually much longer than they used to be. And, you know, the creeks no longer dry up in the middle of the summer, even in the droughtiest summers that they've had. You know, the creeks no longer dry up. They're just these these areas that used to be, you know, desert with this little creek running through are now wet meadows and wetlands. And they have a tremendous amount of wildlife there. They don't have as many fires in the area. It's just been such a wonderful story. And, you know, not only a wonderful story of the way humans figured out how to cooperate with the rest of nature and stop doing the damage they were doing, but how humans who... Humans, the scientists, the ranchers, and the agency personnel figured out how to work together uh, as this transformation was going through. Um, They really came up with a cooperative model for meeting and working together that has just been profound. And I think it's a profound example for people and projects and problems everywhere. Well, it was also not, uh, it's no longer us versus them. It's how can we work together to change things? And uh, one of right. the things I was interested in in, in that story was that uh, some of the trees came back along the waterways because it provided more shade. It could have been a willow, very simple willow, and it doesn't have to be a tall tree to make an impact to shade or cool the water so that the, that the um, trout can come back. That whole idea, that concept of a tree changing how an environment can be helpful in not only providing a food for beaver to cut down, but also for other um, organisms to to benefit from. So I thought that was really, that was a really good story because you don't hear too many of those happy stories. (laughs) I love that story. Well, it just seems like a common theme. We've talked about Suzanne and then finishing up here now with the ranchers and the cooperative engagement with beavers. But yeah, it just seems like the book has that theme as well of cooperative engagement. You know, how can we help each other? And uh, also, how can we bring back what nature did for so many thousands of years, bring it 
into modern life and adapt it as need be, but absolutely embrace what nature has done and learn from it rather than control it, which I can't help but think getting back to your street tree maples is another classic case of humans being freaked out by nature and trees. So let's give a monoculture to your street trees and replicate that. And as Eva said, repeat our mistakes as well. So we have no choice but to march forward with with the new ways melding with the old ways. And it's really wonderful that a journalist like you can go in and talk with people who are working on projects such as this that can illuminate these projects for us as the public to be able to share that information and to extend information, you know, time and again in your writings where you're showing another example of how something can change and another example of how something can change. And that kind of gives us hope that, you know, that we do have the power to reverse the damage that we've done and that we can celebrate the things that are working and try to change the things that aren't. Yeah, you know, one of the things that became so clear to me working on this book is that nature really responds quickly when we stop the damage. And, you know, we need to employ our powers of of observation. And whether that's through mainstream science or by paying attention to the lessons that indigenous people learned over thousands of years about how to interact with these landscapes. But, you know, we can learn how to stop doing damage. I just read an article about there are a couple of Israeli scientists. So, you know, it's summertime, everybody is slathering on uh, sunscreen and a lot of, and sun, you know, and then they go in the water and all those chemicals that are in the sunscreen cause problems for fish and microbes in the water and coral reefs and all that because they are not nature-friendly chemicals. Well, these scientists in Israel have come up with a sunscreen that when you go in the water, it actually feeds the coral reefs. I don't know what's in it, but I just thought that was so brilliant. And we just sort of need more, many, 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 thousands more examples of people thinking, well, wait, you know, maybe we can tweak this thing that we do so that it's not an assault on the natural world. And that's, I think that's, that's a really good way to end our, our interview with you. And time flew by so quickly and it was so delightful chatting with you. And of course, we have one question. How do you want to, do you want to ask Kristen? Kristen? Oh yeah, I think with Kristen, I'll set it up slowly. It's just, I, I want to say you've gotten to experience some magic in your life with, with your journalistic ventures. Do you have a, a particular tree that you resonate with? Do you have a spirit tree? Have you conversed with a tree? Have you hugged a well, tree? Well, you know, I, I, I looked at your website, Eva, and I saw that picture of you hugging a tree or look, you know, and there are many pictures like that of me. And it it is so hard to pick a tree. I mean, I just, I have a relationship with, I feel like I have a relationship with all of them. I have a relationship with the persimmon tree in my backyard and I, I have, you know, um, but I think well, there, okay, there is a relationship I have with a tree that I've known since I was a child, and it's a, a Jeffrey Pine Ooh. at Lake Tahoe, which is wow. where my family frequently goes. And it's so uh, it has been 
getting bigger and getting bigger, but I love it because it has this incredible fragrance. And I just like stick my nose, stick my nose in the bark and inhale that fragrance. But okay, so one of the trees that I see more frequently here in Portland is that there's a there's a fabulous wilderness park here in the city of Portland. It's called Oak Bottom, Oak Bottom Na- National Wildlife or not National Wildlife Refuge. And there's a a tree along the path. So there's a big wetland there, big pond. And there's a path along it. And there's this one tree there. And I don't even know what kind of tree it is. It is so damaged. It, you know, has, you know, broken branches. And it is a damaged old tree. But it is still going strong. It's still putting up leaves and all that. But in one of the, the scars in this tree, there's always a Western screech owl. So I just love it when I walk around that path and that, that owl is always there. That tree as damaged and as hanging on as it is, it's giving refuge, um, giving refuge to that owl and giving hope to me. So it's the anonymous tree that has the um, habitat for an owl. Yeah. What a nice story. It is. It's a nice We have not had one like that yet. We have not had a story like that. (laughs) Well, this was a sheer delight and I really appreciate, really appreciate you writing the book that you did and I wish you all the successes that this book will bring to you and Hal and I just really enjoyed interviewing you. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed talking to you. You know, I loved writing that book. It, I think I need to write books like that for myself. You know, it gives me hope. It gives me uh, purpose. And I, I, I love hearing the stories of the scientists who are doing this work, the ranchers and farmers and activists who are doing this work. And, um, and I love talking to people about it. Well, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. And be well. Yep, you too. Thanks. Thanks, Kristen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.